So we were just sure in the summer, last summer, that by the end of this series, we would be in Dana Point and we would need one Sunday to celebrate in the process, right? And uh, this chapter, if you went and read the book of Matthew, actually fits in better with chapters 20, 21 and 22. Um, in uh, Matthew 24, he's starting to do uh, something a little different. So we believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. And uh, that's why we ask you to have one, to read it, to, to apply it to your life. We believe that God's Spirit will use God's Word to open our eyes to God's way so that we can hear God's voice guide our lives, our decision-making, our choices. And so we want God pleased with us, and we're convinced that by studying His Word, we can determine what His will is for us, and uh, we want to be those kind of people. So you might ask, well, why do we spend time talking about scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of 2,000 years ago? Well, the Bible talks a lot about them, and uh, here in Matthew 23, Jesus gives a scorching public review and rebuke uh, to the Pharisees. And, you know, as you look at the, uh, the text, uh, you have to say, where? am I in the text? Am I, uh, am I part of Jesus' disciples? Am I part of the crowd that's just listening to be entertained? Am I one of the, 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 the Pharisees that he calls hypocrites over and over? Uh, which one are you? Which one am I? I mean, there were about 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day, and not all of them were schemers and sneaky, but they had that reputation. Probably two notable ones in the Bible would be Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, found in John chapter 3. And then he shows up again later defending Jesus in the Sanhedrin, and they got all after him. And then on the day that he died, he joined with another Pharisee named Joseph of Arimathea, and the two of them were the ones who had become believers and buried Jesus' body in a, in a more dignified fashion than a criminal would have been buried. Pharisee means separate. They had separated themselves from the Gentiles or from other people who didn't take the law of God seriously. They... I mean, these are people who are serious about their Bible study. They would have made great neighbors. They would have kept all the CCNRs. You know, they studied God's Word as an academic exercise, and, and they probably didn't even realize they were supposed to be applying it to their own heart, to their own life. And when confronted by Jesus, which caused a moment of spiritual crisis did for them, it does for us. They galvanized their position, unfortunately. They refused to humble themselves and follow Jesus, even though he was teaching directly from Scripture, even though he was right. So Jesus soundly condemns them in their practice of religion. And we need to be careful because some of what Jesus condemned in them, we could find in ourselves, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in how we make life work. In fact, <laughs> We might be Pharisees or Pharisees in training, even without realizing it. In fact, the longer you hang out at church, the more likely you are that you can start to think like they do. So what Jesus says to them, we need to ponder, would he say the same to us? Last week, Pastor Ron talked about Jesus uh, an interaction he'd had with the Pharisees, which he's had numerous uh, conflicts with them, showing them that the Messiah was not just the son of David. He was the Son of God. And if Jesus is God, then He is to be revered and followed and obeyed. If He's not God, well, then His ideas could be entertained, but not to be taken too seriously. So it really comes down to the question, who is Jesus? We believe that Jesus is God who came in human flesh into this world and is still alive to this day. So 
in Matthew 23, Jesus is teaching in a public place. He has people gathered around him as his disciples, then other people that want to know the truth. And he has just been accosted once again by the Pharisees who don't mind interrupting to, to state their agenda. And uh, so he's teaching interested listeners. Now they're interrupted. So he turns to the crowd like a teacher to his class to point out the errors of the unruly student. In chapter 3, it says, 23, Jesus says to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes of the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. <laughs> you ever wonder where the phrase like walk your talk comes from? It comes right here from the lips of Jesus. It's on their lips, but it's not how they live. They talk it, but they don't walk it. And Jesus says, do what they say. They're teaching God's word. But don't live like they live. Don't walk it the way they do. Don't do what they do. Look at verse 2. The scribes of the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Moses, of course, had authority by virtue of God spoke to him through a burning bush. God used him to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, took them to Mount Sinai. Moses was up for 40 days. He was in God's presence, receiving the law and the commandments and everything that God wanted to tell him. And Moses was able to say with authority, here is the word of God. I heard it from his lips myself. But there's no record of God ascribing authority to the scribes or the Pharisees. The only authority they have is in the Word of God. And scribes and Pharisees taught from the Word of God, but they had added their own interpretations, their own understandings, their own preferences. They'd even written about it. They had talked about it. They argued about it often, and they presented their own ideas to the people of God as if they were God's ideas. They gave them the same authority, maybe even a little more authority than they gave God's Word. And Jesus faults them for this misappropriation of righteousness. Righteousness before God is not just keeping all the rules. Righteousness in God's sight is a gift that is only given to people who have humbled their heart. And then God declares you righteous in his sight, not guilty. And then he begins to do a work in your heart to make it a place where Christ can live. Jesus said about the Pharisees, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to move, lift a finger to help. See, the Pharisees saw their ministry as interpreting the law to everyone and clarifying and adding heavy burdens of failure and shortcoming and sin. Now, I'm convinced that every Christian has a ministry an area to serve the Lord. And a Christian without a ministry is a contradiction in terms. And these Pharisees, unfortunately, saw theirs as adding to the burdens of others, not helping them. It's so unlike Jesus. Jesus came to help carry the load by forgiving our sin, by walking alongside of us, by giving us his word. Compared to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he wants. Jesus is God, and he can give you rest, physical rest, spiritual rest. No more striving, no more self-advancement, just rest. Jesus is gentle, and he's humble, and he's peaceful. And he wants to team up with you to carry your burdens. So how do you get to that sweet spot? Well, you humble yourself and you come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. You become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus is the teacher in this spot, and he says to the students, the Pharisees, you're failing. You know God's word, but you're not living it. You talk it, but you don't walk it. You are failing. And then Jesus basically says to the crowd and to the disciples, they do their deeds to be seen by others. They're just in it for show. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with the term virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. It's kind of like somebody who drives a Prius so that you get the idea they're trying to save the planet. Okay, um, I'm not picking on you Prius drivers. Now, I'm just pointing out that some people have bought a Prius for that reason. And the Pharisees have these phylacteries. They're, they're a little box that they would wear either on their forehead or on their wrist. And you were supposed to write a scripture that you wanted to remember. And then it was, uh, um, you would put the little scripture in there so that you could get it out during the day and review it. Kind of like a, a cue card so that you'd remember it. Well, some of them had bigger, they'd gotten bigger and fancier so that you would notice those. Or they have the, the, uh, the little strings on the corners of their garments. So they would have prayer reminders right on their clothing. So you could see, boy, some of those had gotten really fancy dancy. And uh, so you would look at them and say, wow, look how much they pray. They have those, those tassels that remind them so often they are dressed for spiritual success. I can see some of you dressed for spiritual success today. It looks really nice. Um, I, I'm just kidding you. I don't even know how to dress anymore for church. But... Um, <laughs> The idea is that it's not about what we wear. It's the condition of our heart. And Jesus in this portion is telling the people, the Pharisees are failing. They're just faking it. They're just trying to impress you. They're doing their deeds to be seen by others. They love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. They're all for show. It's not real. It's not a genuine faith. They love to talk the part. They love to look the part. They grab the positions of honor in public places. They like to be called titles that indicate honor. They're proud of themselves. And if they have any humility, they're proud of that too. And Jesus says, in God's eyes, it, a relationship with God starts with humility. And if you truly love and understand God, you serve others. What's your ministry? Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what do you do if your teacher, if you're the student, or if your teacher lets you know that you're failing? Well, you could ignore it change nothing, but then you've cooked your own goose. You have no hope, okay? Or you could go to the teacher in private and apologize for being such a sloppy student and make some promises and see if you couldn't get a little bit of mercy and see if you couldn't do something that could at least get you a passing grade. I can remember my sister bringing home a low, very low grade in science. Okay, tell you the truth, it was an F. And I fortunately wasn't part of the conversation with her and our dad, but I could hear the verbal rebuke through the closed doors, and it ended in tears and apologies and promises. So what do you do if you come home with a bad grade? How, how do you, can't you get to the teacher privately and say, what could I possibly do to get that grade up a little bit? I mean, Jesus is the teacher. The Pharisees are standing right there when their grades are posted. <laughs> 
But there were no tears. There were no regrets. There were no apologies. There were no uh, promises. There was no begging for mercy. There's no humility. There's no change of heart. Maybe they thought there was no hope. What's the use? Then they really didn't know God at all. Because God's heart is to forgive. God's heart is to open relationship. God's heart is to care. God's heart is to pull people closer to himself. Do you remember in Genesis 18, way back near the beginning of the Bible, God comes to his friend Abraham, and they're sitting having conversation, and finally God says, i got to tell Abraham what we're going to do. Abraham, tomorrow, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to destroy them because they are so wicked. The wickedness has come up to me in heaven. Abraham knows that his nephew has moved there and his family. And he says to God, well, God, if there are 50 people, righteous people in that whole city, would you destroy those 50 righteous people with the wicked ones? And God says, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I would save this whole city just for those 50. Abraham goes, well, what about 45? Well, what about 40? This is how people learn to negotiate. See, what about 30? What about 20? Hey, God, I know I'm really pressing it. What about 10? If there's just 10 righteous people in the city, will you save the whole city? And half of those would have been in Lot's family if they were living righteous. And God says, no, I won't. But the city was destroyed. You see, God really wanted to forgive and to redeem and to restore and to love and to put his arms around those people. And instead, they're running the other way. Or you look at Jonah, one of the prophets. You know the story. The most famous part, of course, is he got swallowed by a, a, a great fish or a whale. But see, God first comes to him and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell those people, repent or you'll perish. And it, Jonah, in his own thought process, goes, those people are my enemies. I hate those people from Nineveh. They are so disgusting. I, I, I know they're bad. I know God punishes evil. I'm excited that God's going to punish them. I can't wait. Now you want me to go preach to them to repent? Uh Uh-uh. And he gets on a boat and he goes the other way. That's where God gave him the time out to, you know, his life was in balance for about three days. Then God has the whale spit him out on the beach and says, now Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. So he gets there, madder than a hoot, kind of mad at the whole situation. And he walks from one side of the city to the other, took three days across the city and basically said, 40 days and God says you're toast. You do not stand a chance. Turn or burn. God wants you to repent. And he just kept walking, saying it over and over. And in Jonah 3, verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they repented. That wasn't supposed to happen. They repented. They really repented. They, they stopped everything they were doing. They, they got in a mode of worship. They got down on their knees before God. They even tore some of their clothing. They were in sackcloth and ashes. They said, oh, God, we have to. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. Please forgive us. And God forgave them and didn't punish them. And the next verse says, and it pleased Jonah, ex- displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was still back in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and you are merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. God, Abraham, um, Jonah says, God, I knew you were just like that. You love to forgive people. You love to pull them closer to yourself. You love to have them get right with God. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to see them be punished. I hate those people. So Jonah still had a little bit of work to do, didn't he? In his own heart. Or what about the thief on the cross? You know, he wasn't there because he ripped a bicycle off from Walmart. He had probably killed somebody. 
And he's hanging there next to Jesus, and he says, we are getting what we deserve, but Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I mean, this guy didn't have time for communion. He never was baptized. But Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Because God loves people. He comes seeking and wants to save the lost. And it starts with a humble heart that says, God, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. But from the Pharisees that day, the silence was deafening. And it was damning. They had made their case against Jesus. They had tried over and tried over and over to trick him, to trap him in his words, to embarrass him before the crowd, to get him in trouble with the law, to somehow poke holes in him. But they were blind to who Jesus really was. Jesus is God. He's the ultimate authority. And he's just told them, you're failing. And no one moved. No one repented. Nobody asked for forgiveness. No one budges an inch. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. It was their prerogative. It's our prerogative too. To just say, this is the way I am and I'm staying this way. We can stay hard-hearted and proud and immovable by God if we choose to. But we do it at our own peril and there will be a price. And Jesus was the teacher they ignored. But Jesus didn't leave it there because Jesus is also God. And therefore, he's the judge. And he moves into his judgment against the Pharisees. This happens to be the longest recorded rebuke by Jesus in the entire Bible. Now, I have never met anybody who's claimed Matthew chapter 23 as they are very favorite scripture. <laughs> I just haven't. And um, there probably hasn't ever been one because God is trying to be redemptive here with them. And so Jesus goes into a period of where he says, whoa, seven times, seven or eight times. He says, woe to the Pharisees, which woe is the opposite of blessing. It's a curse. It's a judgment. It's pronouncing a, a judgment. So woe is also translated, what sorrow awaits you, or you're helpless, or you're doomed. And Jesus, as the judge, is confronting their pride hoping one last time, hoping for their pride to break. And he's condemning their hypocrisy. Now, a hypocrite, which he calls them hypocrites six out of the seven times. Hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does something else. It's an actor, a pretender. It's a fake. It's like the oversized PE coach you had that would blow the whistle for you to run wind sprints. <laughs> now, I don't know who did this first, but several commentaries take these woes, seven or eight of them, and they line them up with the Beatitudes that are in Matthew 5, the blesseds that Jesus said at the beginning. Blessed are you this, blessed are you if you this. And so I, I want us to get to look at those as you lay those side by side. I mean, in almost all these condemnations, Jesus publicly there calls the Pharisees hypocrites because they're all about show and position and influence and honor and being recognized. And they would have been cringing there at the back of the crowd at this negative exposure every time Jesus said it. But the Pharisees were a stumbling block to the very people they were supposed to be helping. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow others who want to to enter. When Jesus was talking in, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God opens the kingdom of heaven to all who are poor in spirit, who are humble, 
who are broken, who are needy, who know it, people who ask God for his help. The Pharisees aren't entering the kingdom of heaven and they're blocking the door, preventing other people from getting in. And every person you see that's in the kingdom of heaven, when we get there, you're going to see this. Every person in the kingdom of heaven, except Jesus, will have arrived there needy and broken and contrite and humbled, aware that they don't deserve it, they can't earn it, and they didn't stand a chance without the gift of salvation that Jesus has given. Nobody will be able to say, you know, I got here on my own merits. I earned this. I worked hard. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps all the way into heaven. It, does, it won't happen that way. The only people there are people who have bowed before Jesus Christ and asked him to be their savior. God wants every person he's made in love to be in his kingdom. And he wants these Pharisees to bend and to bow and to enter the kingdom. And they don't. And they're standing in the way of others who genuinely want to get with God. Look at verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. See, if you represent God, and if you claim Jesus is your Savior, then to your family and your friends, you represent God. Then your job, if you represent God, is to help alleviate suffering to lift people up. And Jesus condemns the Pharisees. You take serious advantage of the disadvantaged, the widows, and you give long, long prayers, not to God, but to impress other people. And God is watching. And you'll receive the greater condemnation. And God has a soft spot in his heart for people who are poor and weakened and impoverished and left out. And so care for them on his behalf. And pray prayers only with sincerity and humility because God is listening. And humble prayers impress him favorably. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say, well, in the New Testament portion there is actually, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Then he goes on here in verse 15 to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. A proselyte is a convert. A child of hell is a person who's been, who has rejected God's invitation for salvation or to live life in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and they are proudly parading their own philosophy, their own self-righteousness. I mean, the Pharisees have developed followers that are even more eager to push their godless legalism that it will only end in tears and in eternal damnation and in death. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek people, which a better word would probably be humble people, recognize their need for God. And they invite Him into their life. And then they live life that's truly life. They inherit God's blessings for here and hereafter. Verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. I mean, in just a sentence or two here, Jesus labels the Pharisees blind guides, blind fools, blind men. I mean, they are greedy people who've developed loopholes to get around making and keeping promises. 
And they want to look righteous and upright without actually being righteous before God. They've been blinded by their own greedy ambition. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied. And Jesus is blessing those who have appetites, ambitions, earnest desires to be righteous, to be right with God. People who desire to see, to really see God as God sees. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. People who see and know that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover us because our own righteousness is so inadequate. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, you swallow a camel. Now, tithing is a practice of giving God 10% of your income. It's taught in the Old Testament primarily. The law required tithing, not because God needs money, but because he wants his people to realize that everything they have is a gift from God. So hold it lightly and practice generosity. So this verse is one of the few places in the New Testament where tithing is mentioned. And Jesus doesn't seem to be lowering the standard or the requirement of tithing and even though many people in our day and age just ignore what God's guidance on tithing. We get ourselves in overcommitted positions or our hearts just aren't feeling that generous or we don't think it should apply to us. Meanwhile, we hoard this little pile of our own treasure. So I want to say take God's word seriously. The New Testament has a longer portion if you wanted to read it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where it talks about Christian generosity. That's not really what I'm talking about today, so um, I'm going to stay on what he's talking about here of righteousness. But he looks at the Pharisees and says, you tithe even right down to the little pieces of mint, mint leaves, but you're missing out on the big things, justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's big. He says you're majoring on the minors. You're not practicing the most important things. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. Coach John Wooden once said, when we are out of sympathy with the young, our work in this world is over. Sympathy would lead us to be merciful. The next condemnation was a major issue. He's, Jesus is saying, don't just look godly, be godly. It starts with repentance and letting God clean your heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. God sees your heart is what he's telling them. He's not looking at the outward professional profile that you present to everyone else. If you want a genuine relationship with God, you have to start with cleaning your heart. Start on the inside. Do the soul work. The next woe seems very similar. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said, you are like whitewashed tombs. What a picture. Death and decay and stench on the inside, a painted facade on the outside, trying to look pretty and clean, where in reality there is corruption, decay, and death. And God's not fooled. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. 
God doesn't want you to have a spotless reputation. He wants you to have a pure heart. He says in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Do you remember in the Bible who showed up in the form of a serpent? Yeah, Satan, Genesis chapter 3, showed up to Adam and Eve, first man and woman, and tried to convince them they didn't, couldn't trust God, and they needed to make their own decision and disobey God. And Jesus is calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers, you sons of Satan, because of their hypocrisy and spiritual blindness. You compare this to what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, who will be blessed? Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's answer Jesus' question. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Your sin and mine send us there. We chose it ourselves. So by yourself, you can't. You have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. You need to see that the only way to be right with God is to recognize Jesus as God, as the only one who can forgive you and apologize and ask him to claim you as his own. So if we were to look at Jesus, the judge here, passing judgment, he's established their guilt. Summary, he says, you're a hypocrite. You're a blind guide. You reject God and you prevent other people from getting to him. You lead people astray, actually leading them toward hell. You're tricky. You find loopholes so you can continue being dishonest and greedy. And you tithe, but you've left out the most important part of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And you're filthy where it really matters, in your heart. And you put up a good front, but you're dead and decayed inside. And the blood of the righteous is on your hands. And you will stand before God to be sentenced. You are sons of Satan. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Well, if you heard a sentence like that pronounced over you, wouldn't you repent and beg for mercy? Wouldn't it be great to see a verse or two right here of at least one recorded story of one Pharisee coming through the crowd, getting down on their knees before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm so sorry, you were talking to me. That's my heart that you were describing. I don't stand a chance before God. Please forgive me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Please give me your mercy. That would have been wonderful, but... There's no recorded verse like that. It could have happened, but I don't think it did. It didn't, uh, not for them, and their moment has passed. So what about you? What about me? The reason the story is in here is for us to compare ourselves to them and realize we have some of the same sin. We have some of the same heart condition of the heart. And Jesus, you see, never preached to them again, never preached against them again. He, he, he wasn't angry or bitter. His heart was broken. Jesus was crying inside over the lost loves because God had created those people. And he wanted to call them his own. He wanted to bring them to himself. And in the next few verses, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
So your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right here, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to gather those God loves into God's arms. But they have to want that. It's got to be mutual. And God won't force it. He won't twist your arm. He waits. He hopes. He grieves. He hopes some more. Jesus is the righteous judge, and he will pronounce judgment and mete out punishment like he did on the Pharisees. But that's not his first choice. He loves you, and he died for you. He came to save you. Jesus died so that you could live. God loves you. God forgives. So who are you in this story? Are you part of the disciples fully following Jesus? Are you part of the crowd who's there just to listen to have their ears tickled? Are you one of the Pharisees that says, I'm set in my way and even God is not going to change it? How do you respond? Open your eyes. Jesus is the teacher. He's also the final judge. He's God. He's our Savior and He's calling your name and He loves you. So let's come before Him humbly and ask for His forgiveness for God's cleansing and healing. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, we want to devote ourselves completely to you. I pray so for each person here that as we've heard your word, your spirit will do its work to get to us in just that little spot where we need to know what we need to do to be right with you. Thank you for speaking to us even now. Amen.